0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. Again, looking forward to a lot of things uh, for all of, all of you who are part of our Bible reading plan. And, you know, we, we took a break. Uh, but starting tomorrow, I hope you could join in with us. One of the main feedbacks we got from the Bible reading plan this past year was that there's a lot of chapters. For Luke, Acts, we're looking at like 10, 15 verses at a time. So I said this last time, but you have no excuse now. It's going to be little bits of a time where we're reading together. And it's just encouraging to know our church, we're going through a plan like this. So again, it begins tomorrow. Look forward to that. And again, all the all the all the women in our church. I really hope you can make it to that praise and prayer night. Uh, just an awesome time for our sisters to gather together. And all the all the husbands, you have one role, just to babysit the kids and let your wives go freely and to enjoy that night. They may not come back till midnight, but it's all good. Let them enjoy. Let them have that evening together. Um, and also, if you're new to our church, uh, we are going through a new sermon series starting today, and I'm going to be kicking it off. But we actually are going to be having uh, guest speakers coming starting next week, and. There are speakers that uh, I feel could be helpful in speaking to our church. Just want to briefly preview who those guest speakers are. Uh, next Sunday, we have our brother named Jay Song, Pastor Jay. Some of you know who he is. He's a pastor at True North up in, uh, in NorCal. He's spoken for our church before. He is a friend to many people in our church. And I always tell people he is probably the funniest Asian American I've ever met. He is hilarious. I'm not sure how funny he'll be at the pulpit, but if you talk him afterwards, he is hilarious. So that's uh, Pastor Jay will be coming next Sunday. The Sunday after that, is a brother named Pastor Hamley Liu. He is the lead pastor at a, pa- a church called First Chinese Baptist in Walnut. And again, um, I'm in a lead pastor group with him where we chat all the time, and nothing but respectable things that I hear about him, nothing but a respectful guy when I chat with him. And so, really looking forward to him coming and speaking for our church for the first time. And then in three weeks, we have a brother named Alex Jun, who will be speaking for our church. Alex Jun, he's an elder at New Life Fullerton. He is also a professor at Azusa Pacific University. And he has a lot of interesting thoughts when it comes to the church. Uh, I love the way he thinks. He's, he might say some wild things. And so if he does, I will apologize on behalf of Alex. But he says I think it's more insightful, the things that he says. Um, one thing that he told me that just blew my mind was he goes to a predominantly Asian American church and he was someone who was not Asian was telling him, you know, I don't really believe in Asian American churches. I think every church should be like diverse. And Alex is like, I completely agree with you. So when are you going to start coming to my church? And it was just like, you know, wow, that just really blows your brain. Like, we don't think that way, but Alex, he just has a way of thinking that I think it's be really fascinating what he talks about. So anyways, that's going to be uh, the guest speakers who come and they're not just coming to give random messages. Um, But the series that we're going through, uh, it's called uh, A Faith of Our Own. And the reason why we're going through a series titled this way for just four weeks is I feel like for a lot of us here, um, we have faith, we follow Jesus, and yet how personal is that to us? How real is that to who we are? I feel like the common moniker, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do?, it's nice, it's helpful, what would Jesus do in the situation? But I would caveat with something I heard, which is a better way of looking at it, is not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do if he were you? Because if he were you, it's going to, look, it's going to be customized to your situation, to your unique background, to your unique personality, and yet at the same time, if Jesus were you, how would he respond to that situa- situation? Because it's not just about being a Christian, but you as a Christian, What does that look like? And so the hope is that this series, we could look at our faith in light of who we are, in light of our cultural background, and really just be real and honest about what does a faith look like if it actually was something that was real in my personal life. And so today, what I'm going to do, I'm going to have a broad overview of what it looks like to uh, pretty much own your faith What it means to make our faith our own. And we're gonna be looking at this passage from Philippians chapter two, verses twelve to eighteen. This is written by the Apostle Paul. He is writing to a church in the city of Philippi. He is exhorting this church, and he writes a short letter that or a short passage that I feel like is a nice Way to kick off this series. And if you're new to our church, we believe our God is alive and living, and every time we read the scriptures, he is speaking. So if we all rise together as we read the scripture passage, starting in verse 12. So Philippians chapter 2, it's in the program where it's in your Bibles. Starting in verse 12, this is the Apostle Paul. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. "'Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. "'For it is God who is working in you, "'both to will and to work according to his good purpose. "'Do everything without grumbling and arguing, "'so that you may be blameless and pure, "'children of God who are faultless "'in a crooked and perverted generation, "'among whom you shine like stars in the world "'by holding firm to the word of life. "'Then I could boast in the day of Christ "'that I didn't run or labor for nothing.' But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, would your spirit speak, awaken hearts that need to be awakened, encourage, O Lord, those who need to be encouraged, and may we just sense your presence here and speaking to us and stirring your spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Back in 1975, there was a psychologist named Ellen Langer. She did an experiment where she went to an office building. And at this office building, she approached different people, random people, offering lottery tickets for $1. If you want a lottery ticket, pay $1 and I'll give it to you. The first group of people, the first half of the folks who she met and she offered these tickets to, when they gave her a dollar, she would just give them a random lottery ticket. So if you want one, random ticket. she just give it to them. That was the first group. But then towards the second half of the day, the second group, when people bought her lottery ticket for $1, she let them choose, which one do you want? And each of the people, they grabbed the lottery ticket that they wanted, and they held on to it. Two weeks later passed by, and she reached out to every single person who she sold the lottery ticket to, and she told them, hey, just know there's a lot more people who want to buy lottery tickets. Can I buy it back from you? How much would you sell it for if I could get it back from you? That first group, the group that all got the random tickets, they said, oh, we bought it for a dollar, but tell you what, I'll give it back to you for $2. And so she was like, great. So she bought all those tickets back for $2. That second group, the ones who chose their own lottery, t- lottery tickets, they're like, oh, I bought it for a dollar. I'll sell it back to you for $9. All of them. It was like the average was about $9. And what's interesting about that is, like, huh, so that second group, the group that chose their lottery tickets, for some reason, they saw that their tickets had a lot more value versus that first group that was just given this random ticket. This experiment showed a lot of different implications about how human beings function. But one thing that it definitely showed was that um, when you have something, you really value it when you feel like you own it, when it's something that's yours, something that you chose. If it's just given to you, it's like, but if it's something like, this is my lottery ticket, this is the one that I chose, for some reason, it enhances the value in our eyes. That's why for a lot of people who work in tech companies, I don't know if you guys know, if you work in a tech company or if you know friends who work in tech companies, they don't only offer you salary at tech companies, but what a lot of them do is they offer you stock options as part of your pay. And the reason why is not just because they're trying to be nice, but they know that if you have skin in the game, if you are invested in this company, where the bottom line of the company is also your bottom line, what's going to happen is you are going to more likely sacrifice for this company, you are more likely going to use your time, your energy, you're going to be more enthusiastic because this is something that you are truly invested in. One author describes this idea of ownership like this, quote, it's on the screen. Ownership, this is a powerful thing. It makes people feel things. It colors a person's view of the object of their possession and its value. What you feel for something you own is completely different than how you feel about something that isn't yours. That's why people tend to care about their own stuff. Ownership feeds devotion, and it often dictates action. That's why we're often told, oh, if you want to, you know, when you're part of a group or a church or a community, take ownership of it. Take ownership of this. But here's a question. What about your faith? What does it look like for you to take ownership of your faith in Jesus Christ? In the early church, just know it was very easy to know who took ownership of their faith. You know what it looked like? Are you willing to die? That's what it looked like in the first century In the first century, when Christianity first came onto the scene, it was a new religion. Nobody knew what this religion was. And what made it kind of a disruptive religion was that it totally went against all the societal norms of the ancient Roman city. So, for example, every city, you just participate in these pagan feasts to the local gods. That's how the gods protect you. But these weird Christians, for some reason, as soon as they became Christians, they did not participate in these feasts. And so it made your city very vulnerable. So what happened? A lot of persecution, a lot of ostracization of the Christians, a lot of murders, a lot of martyrdom. And by the second century, one historian records there are about 7 million Christians who died, who were martyred for their faith. And yet this did not lead to the death of Christianity. This actually led to the growth of Christianity. As one scholar named Rodney Stark says, martyrdom, it actually gave Christianity its credibility. The fact that people were willing to die for their faith, it made all the Roman people pay attention to what kind of faith is this. And that's why it's often quoted that it's through the blood of the martyrs that the church was built. So back then, that's how you know, dude, this guy's legit. This person, like, he owns his faith. But what does it look like to own your faith today? In the OC, nobody's being martyred if you're a Christian. And and that's a huge blessing. Thank God we're not being martyred these days. But it's, it's really easy to just be a Christian, and that kind of is a problem, the fact that it's so easy just to say you're a Christian. I have a friend, he's a... Uh, He's you know, dating on the dating, dating app, Hinge, or whatever it is these days. And I'm so fascinated by online dating because that was before my time. I'm like, dude, hey, what's online dating like? And so I would talk to this person like, hey, so like, what's it like? Is it fun? Like, is it challenging? Is it stressful? Like, what's some takeaways you got? And I'll never forget he told me, like, this is my main thing I learned about online dating. The word Christian means nothing. Just because someone says they're a Christian on their Hinge profile doesn't mean anything. Because it's so easy just to say you're a Christian. And it's so loose of what we mean by what it means to follow Jesus. Especially a lot of people in the OC, we define Christianity as you believe in some concept of God. You grew up going to church and youth group. You agree, Jesus, yeah, he seems legit. And you try to live a moral life. Generally speaking, that's the type of idea or label that we put upon ourselves when we say we're a Christian. It's like with that type of description. And when your faith is like that, when it's just this label that you put on your profile, it brands you a certain way, but it's not going to be really transformational. Because what you're actually doing is you're living by faith according to your culture. Or you're doing it because you're just habitualized to it. You've been uh, used to going to church your whole life. You're living by the fumes of your parents' faith that you've inherited. But what does it look like to actually own it yourself? To own the Christian faith? To own your relationship with Jesus? Why is it so challenging for us to do this? Some of you here, you say you're a Christian. You're that person. You're on your profile. It says Christian. And yet the sobering thing is how would your life look different if you weren't a Christian? Would your marriage look any different if you weren't a Christian? Would your parenting look any different? Would the way you work look any different? Would your Monday to Saturday look any different? Would the only difference be what you do Sunday morning? For some of us here, that's what does that's what it mean to take ownership for you. Others of you, you made, you became a Christian at a specific time, and this is like a lot of our members, like the, all of our members, just know, if you want to hear the testimony, they're all kind of the same. We all grew up in the church, and then at one point, we realized, oh my gosh, I need to make Christianity my own, and so at a youth retreat or in college, something happened where we made, Christ, we made Jesus our own, and then we took Jesus seriously, and there was a moment for that, but when have you made it your own since then? Do you still feel like this faith is yours? Do you still feel like this is something that's really personal to you, that you're walking with Jesus in a personal way? And what does it look like if we want to? Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church, this new church, and it's one of the blessings of the Philippian church is there's no problems here. They're an awesome church. And Paul, he wants them now, in the midst of them being an awesome church, he wants to exhort them. He wants them to uh, really take their faith and not just sit with it. There's three things that Paul, we're going to see him say to this community that I think is relevant for us and what we're talking about. Number one, Paul tells the church, take ownership of your faith. Secondly, endure the challenges of your faith. And lastly, remember the sacrifices for your faith. So take ownership of your faith, endure the challenges, remember the sacrifice. First, let's look at this first part, taking ownership of your faith. What does it look like to take ownership of your faith? Paul, he's talking to the Philippians, and he's pretty much telling them, hey, take whatever this faith that I gave to you, that I passed on to you, take ownership of it. Make it your own. And he doesn't just tell them to do that, but there's three ways that we could take from this passage of what Paul says. First is, to take ownership of your faith, you need to self-initiate. It needs to be something that you do yourself. Verse 12, look what Paul says. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Paul started this church in Philippi. He planted it. He was their pastor. He was teaching them how to follow Jesus. But now Paul is gone, which is why he's writing this letter. And he tells them, hey, you guys did such a good job following Jesus when I was there. But while I'm gone, keep going. Keep doing it. That's when your faith becomes real. That's when it becomes your own. A lot of you guys know my son, he plays basketball. He loves basketball. Back when he was age four, the reason why he started playing basketball was because of dad, because of me. That wasn't natural. I had to force him to play basketball. I first passed him a ball, I bought him a ball. He had nothing, he wanted nothing to do with it. I bought him a basketball hoop that was nice and big. He didn't want to play with it. I put one in his room, didn't want to play with it. I had to force him to play basketball. I had to make him watch NBA games with me on TV. And he would do it because he just wanted to hang out with dad or spend time with dad. He knew I liked it. So if he asked him back in the day, why did he play basketball, it's because of dad. Fast forward to now, he doesn't even want to play basketball with me anymore. He just plays by himself. He just shoots in the driveway. He shoots in his room. Sometimes he'll be on TV watching YouTube clips of basketball players on his own. It's amazing. Judah, my son, when he plays basketball, it's no longer because of dad. He plays basketball because of basketball. It became his own thing. And this is what Paul is saying, what you have to do with your faith to make it your own. It has to be something you self-initiate, something that you do even if no one else is doing it. Something that you do even when no one else is really present. Whether you're in college or whether you're post-college, whether you're overseas or whether you're in the O.C., whether everyone around you believes and no one else around you believe, you know it's your own when it's something that you do despite anyone else doing it. It's something you self-initiate. That's how you own your faith. Secondly, to own your faith, to take ownership of it, you need to not just self-initiate, but you need to work out your faith. Look what Paul says in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a very controversial verse in our circles here. Because in our circles, we believe, wait, aren't, aren't you Christians? Don't you believe that we are saved by grace? And the reason why we have struggles with this passage is because evangelicals today, when they say the word salvation, are you saved? What we often think is conversion, altar calls. Did you get saved in that moment? And that's how we define salvation. The moment you were saved, the moment you believed in Jesus, but the Bible, when it uses the word salvation, it's not just thinking of that initial moment. The Bible actually has a, a, a bigger, wider scope of what salvation is. I put it on the on the slide here just so we could have a better visual of this. The moment of salvation is termed that it's called justification. The moment where you are justified, you are made right in God's eyes. That's when you place your faith in Jesus, you repent of your sins, he becomes your own, his righteousness covers you, you are accepted in God's eyes. That's the altar call moment. That's conversion. But then you also have sanctification this journey of as you become more and more like jesus you don't just trust in jesus but you become and you are formed by the spirit to become more and more like him and then we wait for the end the next one for glorification where we'll be united with jesus face to face once again the bible looks at all of this and says this whole thing is salvation that's how the bible describes it we tend to just narrow it to justification that's salvation and so we get tripped out by verses like this: work, on, work, work on it. What are you talking about? But no, no, no. But the Bible says, no. This whole thing is salvation. Justification is too. Think of it like a wedding. When did you get married? Your wedding day. When you post anniversary pics, it's the wedding day. But your marriage is much more than the wedding day. It's a lot bigger than that. Marriage is encompasses from marriage to all the years, your twenties, thirties, forties, however you got married until you die. But for a lot of us here, that's kind of, and you have to work on that. You got to work on that. It's not just the wedding that makes your marriage healthy, but you got to work on that marriage. And Paul is saying something similar. Work out your salvation. He's not talking about justification. He's talking about this journey of faith that you have with God. This word, workout, out, it's a particular word. It's on the slide here in the Greek. It emphasizes the, this idea of great effort, great care. It's not intensity, but it's intentionality, consistency. You're always mindful of it. You're always working on it. You're not just on autopilot with it. Think of it for all of you gym rats, all of you who work out, all of you who you, you love the summer, so that's the time you can take off your shirt without any shame. Like all of you guys who are like that. When you work out and you want to build up your muscle, you don't just do four intense workouts a year. That's not how it works. The way it works is you are intentionally, consistently working out your muscles, building them up. Again, think about marriages. Your marriage is not strong because of your amazing honeymoon or that one date night you did that whole year. But your marriage becomes strong when you are intentional, consistently caring for this marriage. And Paul is saying this is how your faith becomes not only strong, but it becomes your own. It is something you're not on autopilot with, something you're just kind of passive with, but you're paying attention to it. You're trying to grow in it. You are straining yourself to grow in your faith. It's not intense, but it is effort and care. In your faith, and the midst of it all, it's not just you. But what does the verse say? It says that work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For verse thirteen, it is God working in you, both to will and to work according to His good purpose. God is fueling you with strength as you do this. But it's up to you also to take this and work together with the Lord. And lastly, to take ownership of your faith, you also need a humbled posture. Look what it says in verse twelve again: Work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. This word fear and trembling, it's used uh, to describe when you approach a king on his throne. It's not, it's not like, you know, oh my gosh, you're a scary monster, but it's like you're fearful, meaning there's a lot of awe, there's a lot of wonder. It's like if you saw uh, Beyonce, you're like, oh my goodness, there's like, you're shaking. Taylor Swift, you're like, oh, you're shaking, because not because you're scared of her, but there's awe and there's wonder about them. And this is the God of the universe. Paul is saying the God of the universe wants to know you. The God of the universe invites you to his throne. The God of all creation says, hey, I've come to die for you, and I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. And when you recognize this, this should really humble you. And I think for a lot of us, that's a very foreign thought, because when you think about God or you think about the things of God, it's not humbling, it's annoying. Like, oh, I have to come to church today. Oh, I have to read my Bible. Oh, I have to pray. Oh, I have to deny my flesh. It's, like, it's kind of annoying. It's like my kids, like when I when I wake up in the morning and you know, when I wake up, it's been a while since I woke up by myself. I wake up to the noise of my kids. And it's like, here we go. So annoying. I know I sound terrible, but all the parents, they all they're all nodding. Like, man, when you wake up to your kids, like it's just you're just ready for this long day where the kids are fighting and they're yelling and they want to play and they want me to f- Fill their cup with water, even though they're more than capable of filling their own cup with water. They want to like share like the same stories that they share with me all the time. And by the time I put them to bed, it's like I'm done. You're annoyed. Why do we have kids? And you kind of just get frustrated. But then, I don't know about you parents, but there are weird evenings where I'll just be on my phone, like oh, I miss my kids because they're sleeping. And I'll look on my pictures, and I'll be, I love my kids. Like I miss my kids. Like it's it's like really strange. And especially when I look at like, you know, past memories of like last year, I look at the kids, I'm like, wow, like, they're getting older. Wow, I should really appreciate this time. Like I, th- there's like very few summers left that my kids would want to hang out with me. And in those moments, I'm just like, I am so blessed to be a parent. I am so thankful that I have kids this age. And then the cycle starts over next morning. Oh, I'm annoyed. But you know, it happens where like in the evening you have those pauses, those moments where you're just like, man, like, I'm so blessed in the season of life. And I think this is kind of what Paul is telling us, yeah, that's how you really begin to appreciate your faith. That's when you're willing to take ownership of it. You need to occasionally get humbled recognizing who God is. It's very natural for us to feel annoyed by things, that, oh, do I have to do these things? Because it's our flesh, that's human beings. But moments like Sundays where we pause and be like, oh yeah, this is who God is. Oh yeah, this is who I am, I'm a sinner. And God is holy. Moments when we come before him in the word and prayer and silence and solitude, moments like that, those are the moments where we're kind of pausing and we're recognizing what kind of posture do I have? Is that why it's so hard to make this faith my own? This is what it looks like to take ownership of your faith. And here's a question. Do you own your faith this way? I have a friend, brother, dear pastor that some of you know. He's a dear brother of mine, named Eugene Park. Some of you guys know who he is. One thing he always tells me is, I like his analogy. He says, you know, the difference between Owning your faith and kind of like renting it or leasing it, it's like the difference between owning a house and leasing a house. When you lease a house, dude, it's not your responsibility. It's the landowners, the landlord. But when you own the house, it's all you. So if you lease a house and you see a crack on the wall, you're like, oh, there's a crack on the wall. Oh, I should call the landlord. And you just go about your day. Because if you own your house and you see a crack, you're like, oh, my goodness, it's so stressful. It's on you. It's on you. You know, people who lease a home, who rent a home, they never think about upgrading their homes. They never look at their kitchen going, how can I make this better? Like, how do I redesign this thing? Because it's not their home. They're just like, whatever, it's all good. For as homeowners, you're always thinking, how could I increase the value of my property? Like, how can I make this higher? What do I do to work on this? Because that's what it means to own something. You're thinking about it. You're, You're always fixated by it. You're seeing how you can make it better. You're seeing how you can grow in it. And some of us here, you approach your faith far more like a home renter than you do a homeowner. And it's seen in your actions. A lot of us, you spend a lot of time working on your golf swing. Like You got into golf and you're like, man, I'm not, so, I'm not just going to play. I'm not just going to get coached. Like, I'm going to do my research. I'm going to swing in a way that I could just hit that ball. Because you care about it. You care about your golf swing. Or your career, you're like, I'm really into my career. How could I build up my resume? And you just research that thing. Or some of your body, you want to research your, like, how could I lose, like, my weight? How can I be fit? And how can I really work out? And you put a lot of thought and effort. You'll wake up early just to make time for the gym. How much effort is that in your, your walk with Christ? In your faith? Oh, there's a book club that's 10 minutes away. Oh, it's too tiring. I'm too tired. Like, do we, do we see like, what's going on there? For some of us here, we feel burdened by the things of the world. There's a lot of things that burden us, uh, politics, the upcoming election, uh, finances, stocks, and those are all legitimate things to be worried about and burdened about, but how often are we burdened about the things of God, his kingdom, his church, his, the city, missions around the world? A lot of us sometimes, when we're not growing in our faith, it's like, oh, we blame the church, we blame the pastor, we blame the sermons, and maybe that's true, but how often do you take ownership of your own growth? What are you doing to grow your, to grow and to get closer to Jesus in your life? Again, many of us we treat our faith like a home renter rather than a home owner, where we don't put much thought and care into it. And here's the problem: if that's the way you function, what's going to happen is, and this is the tragic thing that happens, you're never going to really know the beauty of Jesus if you treat your faith with Him like a home renter. You know, I described having kids, right? How how terrible it sounds! Like it sounds pretty terrible, right? Like waking up to the noise, to the frustration. Uh, why on earth would anybody want kids? And I completely understand why people don't want kids. It's kind of wild. When you have kids, you can't hang out anymore. Like, you, even when you hang out, you're not really hanging out. You're just watching your kids hang out. Like, that's like the, the fate that we all live as parents. We, we can't travel anymore as when you have young kids. Or if you want to travel, good luck. I have stories for you if you want to travel. When you have kids, like, you're just, you just all of a sudden you struggle with anger like, I never struggled with anger before, but once I had kids, like wow, I have anger issues. Like, you never knew that? Like, you just become, you feel like you're becoming almost like a worse person sometimes? Like, why on earth would anybody want kids? And on the outside, it looks crazy, but the only way it makes sense is when you have your own. It's only when your kids are own that you're like, oh, this is Why? There's no amount of babysitting you could do. There's no amount of education volunteer that you could do. Be like, oh, this is why kids are amazing. No, no, no. It's different when you're changing a kid's diaper versus you're changing your kid's diaper. It's really different. It's, when you have your own kid, it's way more annoying than any education experience. Way more annoying than any babysitting experience. But there's this deep beauty that you also experience as well that you can only really understand when it's actually, oh, this is your kid. Same thing with Jesus. If you're only renting your faith in Jesus, dude, you're never going to really understand the beauty of Jesus. Why do, Christ, why do Christians do so much for Christ? But when Jesus is your own, when he's like, no, this is, he's, he's a savior to me, it's the only way it makes sense. And so have you made your faith your own? Is Jesus beautiful to you? For some of us, the only time you worship, you pray, you, you read the scriptures, it's only here on Sundays. And again, that's awesome. I'm glad that at least this is the one day you can do that. But if you want to make your faith your own, what about when you're home by yourself? Is there any presence of God in your life in the midst of outside of community where Jesus, no, he's, he's not just here, but he's with me as I go through my week. Again, a lot of us, we put effort in a lot of things, your career, your, your hobbies, your body. But how much effort do we put into, oh, I need to grow my faith, grow, draw nearer to the Lord? Do you find God annoying, the things of God annoying and burdensome? Maybe we need to pause and check our posture again. But this is how we own our faith. And it's not easy. Because even when you own your faith, man, there are challenging seasons that come where it makes it hard to keep owning it. And that leads to the second point, enduring the challenges in your faith. After Paul, he tells the Philippians, take ownership of your faith. Make sure you do it not just in my presence, but in your presence. Notice he does this random thing in verse 14 and 16 where he warns them about something. Look what he says, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. So that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. This seems really random. Paul just said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, do this without grumbling. Be stars in this generation. And it's like, what's Paul doing? Like, Why is he talking in this way? Some people think he's just talking about the heart and that might be true. But uh, you have to remember, Paul, he is a Jewish Pharisee, or he was. Uh, He has the Old Testament story always in his brain. It's like me. Whenever I think of a sermon illustration, half the times it's Star Wars. Because I'm always thinking about Star Wars, just like I love Star Wars. I love Marvel. You're going to see half the illustrations up here being Star Wars or Marvel. It's always in my brain. For Paul, he's even nerdier than me. He's like the Old Testament. I am always thinking about that. And when Paul, he's talk- talking about this idea of don't grumble, don't argue. Who in the Old Testament always grumbled and argued? Israel ancient Israel. In fact, uh, Paul, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 5 here. He's telling Israel they are the crooked generation. There was a generation that was crooked. And the reason why is because they were always grumbling and complaining. So make sure, Philippian church, you don't grumble. Make sure you don't complain so you could be a different type of generation. Now, here's another question. When did Israel grumble? Where in the story was Israel grumbling all the time? It wasn't when there were slaves in Egypt. When there were slaves in Egypt, they were crying out to God because that was a season of suffering and oppression. Crying out to him. In the promised land, the land of Canaan, they weren't grumbling. They were forgetting God. They were apathetic. Apostasy was taking place. Grumbling took place where? In between, the wilderness. It was in this wilderness journey that they were in where Israel was grumbling. And these are the moments that Paul is warning us about that you have to watch out for with your faith. Because in these in the wilderness it is this in-between place where it's not dramatic, but it's this long period of time for Israel's forty years. But this weird space where it's so easy just to let go of your faith in God and just grumble against him. Mark Sayers, he's a author and pastor in, in Australia. He talks about this period of time in the wilderness for Israel. He has a term that he calls it that I find to be helpful. He calls it the gray zone. And here's a definition of what Sayers says is the gray zone. The gray zone is the overlap of two eras where the normal rules do not apply. And this is what makes the wilderness so hard is it's not really clear, it's gray. It's kind of like, well, there are things of the past that are happening, but there's also things of the future. It's like this weird transition period that puts everything kind of uh, out of whack. So here's a classic example, okay, of the gray zone. Next slide. When you were in high school, you were ASB, you were a Christian, or you weren't a Christian, whatever it is, you know, that was high school. And then you got accepted into college, and you go to college... But there's this weird period of your freshman year where you're like, I still have my high school friends, and yet I don't. Like, who's my real homies? Who are not? You know, my, my li- I'm living out at the dorms, but I'm also like, you know, do my laundry at home. Like, It's like this weird thing that's going on your freshman year. That's called the gray zone, where the rules of high school no longer apply to college, and yet you haven't fully adapted to your college life. That's what the, this weird period that's taking place. And, that's, and because of this, you know a lot of Christians what the statistic is, right? people who are Christians in high school, when they go to college, you know what percent are no longer Christians? Uh, 70%. So only 30% make it with their faith uh, in college. And it's not because of college, it's because of this weird transition period. They don't know how to adjust. And for a lot of us here, we go through wilderness periods or gray zones all the time. This weird transition, whether you're moving, whether you're New job, like something that just puts things out of whack, and we have all these micro versions of it. Let me give a macro version of what happens in our church, in our context. Okay, so next slide here. So there's high school to college. That's how gray zone that I always went through. But then there's not, the next milestone after college is post grad. Post grad is a weird time where you're you're no longer being told like your schedule. No one tells you to study. It's just, it's up to you, man. You can wake up whenever you want. You might be broke if you wake up that late, like you did in college, but it's up to you. you know, it's, all, it's all your choice, and it's like this weird period that's tr- that you transition into, and then after post-grad, there's, you go one of two ways. There's adulting or there's marriage. Some of you, you, you just become an adult, and you start to take responsibility, you get your career, and some of you, you get married, and you get hitched. By the way, I really don't like the idea that some people just put marriage there. Not all of us can get married. Okay, I know the church just thinks there's this random progression of life. No, some of us, you just adult, and that's okay. But some of you get married, some of you adult, it's a transition, no matter what. When you hit your 30s, something kind of happens. And then after this, the next transition for all of us is aging or parenting. You just go, I'm getting old, man. Or if you're a parent, even if you're in 20s, I'm getting old, man. You just get, you just feel old. This weird transition that's there. And what's interesting is in, in these moments, what you have to pay attention to is not the stage, but it's the next slide, the gray zones. It's that wilderness moment where you're transitioning into this new stage that you got to watch out for. Because that's the moment where the rules that you had before, the way you live, and most especially the faith that you live, it does not translate into this new phase. And what are you going to do about that? For a lot of us here, this is so uncomfortable. You know what happens in the gray zone? You go into what's called your comfort zone. Life is so hard as a post-grad So, you know what a lot of post grads do? They go crazy. They party it up. They try to have fun. And it's fun in the beginning, but later on, it's not fun. It's just a coping mechanism because life is so hard. It's so hard that this is your only outlet. You know when a lot of people have drinking issues? People don't have drinking issues in their 20s. Usually, it's because you're having fun in your 20s, you're trying to. You know when drinking issues happen? It's when you have kids and you're just stuck. That's what a lot of drinking issues happens. Why? Because that's your outlet. That's your, your, you, it's so uncomfortable, you go to your comfort zone. Something just to help you cope with this wilderness place that you are in. It's really hard. At gray zone, you're kind of transitioning. You don't know what to do. And especially your faith, it doesn't work anymore. Your college faith does not work post-grad. You have to it has to grow. It has to become more customized to who you are, to what stage you're in. And there's a lot of us here, you could have strong faith in college, but when you're a parent, your faith doesn't, doesn't seem to be working because your faith is the same as college. It's never matured, it's never grown. All the transition periods kind of messed you up. That's the challenge that a lot of us face. And Paul says, watch out for that. You got to watch out for those moments. Because who you were back in these stages, you're not the same person. You are evolving, your life is evolving, your life stage is evolving, your circumstance is evolving. Is your faith evolving? Is it being grown into who you are? Is Jesus customized into the way where he is actually speaking to you, not just back then, but right now? Or are you living off the fumes of your college faith, your high school faith? And that's why the key to these gray zone moments for Paul is found at the end of verse 16. Paul says, if you want to be faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, what does he say? By holding firm to the word of life. In the wilderness, Israel was lost except the voice of God, the presence of God was guiding them. You guys remember how Israel went through the wilderness? There's this flaming thing just kind of leading them, guiding them. There was the Ark of the Covenant that was leading them at one point. They, had, they needed guidance. They needed God's presence all the more. They needed to double down in God's presence in the wilderness. And for a lot of us here, that's the same thing. You got to double down in those in-between great moments. This is not the time to be passive and be like, I'm too busy. This is a time you got to be all the more active because you're confused. And God needs to speak in those moments. The word has to be all the more present in those moments for us. And for many of us, that's where it's challenging because for some of us here, that's your season right now. You are in this gray zone season, and you think it's because, man, maybe it's just like I'm just going through something or it's my mental health or it's my family. Or, but, and that might be true. But it could also be, you know, there's an overlapping era that's happening, there's a wilderness you're going through, and you just got to double down and just coming before the Lord and experiencing His presence in a unique way. Post-college, again, I I feel you guys, it's hard. Post-college life, it's hard. College was beautiful. Dude, you don't have to cook. They just give you food at the dormitory. It was amazing. You had campus ministries that just set up these incredible praise nights for you. But once you, go, you graduate, it's, you're so lost. What do you do? And a lot of us, we haven't recovered since then. And right when you feel like you're comfortable, you get married, and now you're married to this beautiful person who you find out later, man, you're a sinner, and you find out you're a sinner, and it becomes this complicated thing. That's this weird gray zone that happens. Or you're adulting, and you're, you have real responsibilities. And again, don't get me started on young parenting again. When you have young kids, just coming to church is like miracle faith. Just bringing your kids to church, as our sister Joanne said, it is so hard. And oftentimes we look at these transition moments as like, man, these are just you just have to endure, and that's such a tragedy if you think that way. Because the wilderness is actually these unique places that you set you up to shine like stars in this new season of your life. You guys know the country of Australia, and this is going to sound familiar to a lot of you postgrads. But uh, Australia, do you guys know uh, Australia as a landmass? It's as big as the United States. Like on the globe, Australia looks so small, and the United States is huge. Man, we're so prideful, but in real in real life, they're like the same size. And what's interesting about Australia is even though they're the same landmass, the population density is really different. The United States populates three hundred and twenty-nine million people. Australia, twenty-five million. Why so few people live in Australia? It's because look at this map. How much green do you see there? It's all on the coast. Most of Australia is like that drive to Las Vegas, just desert, who wants to live there? It's kind of uninhabitable. And yet, even though Australia is filled with just wilderness that nobody could live in, what's really ironic, but Australia is one of the richest countries in the world. Do you know why? Because a lot of the world's resources, natural resources, it comes from Australia. Gold, silver, iron, it's all from Australia. Because that stuff, precious jewels, it does not grow in the coastlands. It grows in the wilderness. It's through the wilderness that stuff comes out. And that teaches us something. It's a metaphor of why God, he chooses to bring people in the Bible always in the wilderness. It's through the wilderness that there are these unique moments, these unique in-between moments where God really tests you, and through those moments you could become like gold. There's this transformation that happens uniquely in the wilderness seasons of your life. Mark Sayers, again, he says it like this, quote, Throughout the Bible, we see that God chooses again and again to form his people in the wilderness. It is the furnace of transformation, the place where our facades, illusions, fantasies, and props, they are removed and we come face to face with our nothingness. In the wilderness, God strips us of our independence and rebellion and teaches us to depend on him. And that sets you up for whatever new season he calls you in life. You know, personally, not to brag, but uh, if you look on the screen, post-grad life for me, I know a lot of you guys, like, it's so hard. Like, spiritually, I'm dying. Just know for me, it was awesome. Like, I, when I look back at my, my testimony, I'm like, you know when I grew the most spiritually? Post-grad life. Like, that's the place where I was, like, thriving. Not college. Not, it was, like, post-grad. You know why? It wasn't because of the post-grad. It was because of uh, the next part, the gray zone. Right after college, you know how many people warned me about how hard post-grad life is? And I was like, wow, it must be pretty hard. So I doubled down. I never read my Bible more than during that time when I was in my 20s. I never I had so many mentors during that time. I just, like, again, I just was super paranoid just, like, meeting with everybody. I never was more involved at church than during that season. I never tried to practice Sabbath more than during that season. And what's really funny is like when I entered into post-grad life, I was like, "Wow, God is so good. He's just like here. He's just like it was just like fuel. It just fueled the rest of that stage during that transition time. It was really interesting. And before you think I'm like this arrogant schmuck who's just kind of bragging about myself, here's the next one: <laughs> marriage, adulting, not so easy. Marriage life, I would say spiritually, when I first got married, was probably one of the hardest seasons. And it's not because of marriage itself, I don't think. It's not because that was just a season, but it was a uh, gray zone. When I transitioned from being a single guy to all of a sudden getting ready for married, I just thought about life very practically. I just needed to plan things. I just needed to focus on my finance. I just thought very practically. And when I entered a marriage life, I just did not have the fortitude to carry the burdens of whatever marriage life brought me it's because that transition time was just kind of off and wonky for me. See, those gray zone moments, what you need most is to fill those moments with the presence of God, which is the last thing we want to do because, again, you want to go in your comfort zone. But Paul, he's exhorting, if you want this faith to be real and still your own, where you're not just leasing the faith of your college years, but it's really the faith of you right now, these are the moments you've got to really pay attention to. So for you, are you in a gray zone moment right now? Are any of you in this moment of difficulty because you're just in this weird in-between stage. You don't really know how to make sense of it. You're leaning upon your past faith to carry you through. You're not really growing. You're just getting comfortable mainly. Let this be a season where you double down. Let this be a season where, no, you've got to take ownership. This sets you up for the next few years to see the goodness of God in your life. That's how we take ownership of our faith despite the challenges. And lastly, the last exhortation, though, is but remember also the sacrifice for your faith. It's really easy for us to look at all this and go, now go, do it. Go go live out your faith. Go own it. Be a good Christian and do it. And we close in prayer. But notice the whole reason Paul even tells us this. Paul did not just randomly say, hey, go own your faith. Go work out your fear and trembling in salvation. But look, what's the very first word in this entire section? Therefore. Therefore, he is connecting this to something he just said earlier. You see, for, uh, for a lot of us here, you grew up in a church context where you're just told, just serve, serve, go hardcore, make you know, live out your faith powerfully. That's a lot of religiosity, and you will burn out if you keep doing that. But Paul, the only reason why he says this, is in this context, this foundation of, wait, but first and foremost, before you make your faith your own, You have to remember Christ Jesus and how He made you His own. Do you remember why what Christ has done for you? And there's that beautiful passage that's just worth looking at right before this. In Philippians two, verses five. This is what Paul writes. He says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. But instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, my dear friends, just as I always have, and then he goes into our passage. The only way you're going to be able to own your faith in this way without burning out and just feeling this deep burden of trying to make Jesus your own is remembering what Jesus has done for you, how he first made you his own. You're You're in a relationship with him. You're in a covenant with him if you place your trust in Jesus. And he just wants you to come to him now, for you to come and own this faith that he has already owned with you. Next month, I'm going on a trip with my parents to San Diego for four days. Teenage Thomas would have dreaded this trip because my parents, typical parents, you know, Asian-American, don't really speak that much English. And so when I was a teenager, I did not want to spend time with my parents at all. It felt like an obligation, like a duty. But when I got older and I was in like, you know, my early 20s, I was like, you know, yeah, I guess my parents did some good to my life. I'm like, yeah, I guess my parents were like, you know, very good to me. And so I, in my 20s, I was more willing to go on trips with my parents, but only if they initiated and only if they pay for everything. Then I'll consider, I'll go Hawaii. Yeah, if you paid for it, sure, I'll go. But now, uh, this trip, uh, you know who initiated the trip with our parents? I did. I was like, hey, you want to go on a trip? Uh, You know who's paying? We're paying. And my sister, but we're all paying together. And, again, it's, it's, it's strange. Like, and I, I want to go. Like, I look forward to that trip to San Diego with my parents. And the reason why is because, I'm not sure if it's because I'm a parent now, but I just really understand, like, what my parents did for me. Like, it's just really real to me now. Like, wow, my parents, everything I'm doing for my kids, like, they did for me and all the more. And I recognize, like, whatever trip I pay for them, however much time I offer to spend with them, nothing in comparison to the sacrifices and the ways they actually raised me up. Because I really get it now. It's in fact a joy for me to do that. And this is similar to, I think, why Paul, he caveats, he bases this exhortation upon what Jesus did for us. When you understand what Jesus did for you, the sacrifice for your sins, so that you could come before God in a full relationship with him, fully present, fully embraced, Knowing what Jesus did on the cross for you, this is when your faith is not just this burden, it's not just this duty, it's not just a season in your life, but this is something like you. Know, there's nothing that God could ask of me that He that's not He or hasn't done already for me. First, if not far more. And so, as we close and I invite the praise team up, can I encourage us to do a practice this week? How can we better own our faith? Some of you, you just need to be proactive, whether it be self-initiating or working at it. Uh, again, some of us are just really passive. Like only if someone force feeds something to us will we do something. Maybe it's a step to be active this season. Again, here's a very sovereign moment. Join our Bible reading plan. Go through Luke, Luke and Acts with us. And there's no formation groups. There's, no, there's zero accountability. Nobody will know if you do it. Nobody would know if you're reading it. It's the first time maybe you're owning it. It's just you. It's just for you. Maybe for some of you, it's, that's so challenging because, man, you're just going through this wilderness journey. It's like the gray zone is like hitting you hard. But what are ways you can practice your faith now that, man, you just, yeah, you can't do it the way you did before, but what can you do now? As a parent, I get it. Dude, you can't do the Luke-Acts Bible plan, maybe, <laughs> if, you're, if your kid's like a newborn, like you're just tired all day. That might be really hard, but what can you do? What can you do to make your faith your own? Maybe for some of us, we have to recognize that we're in a gray zone, a wilderness for us. Or maybe for some of us, you know, we just need to take a week to like bask in the goodness of God. It's been a long time since we humbled ourselves going, you know, this is what Jesus did for me. And maybe that's why my heart is so hard because I haven't thought about that in a long time. But wherever you're at, can I invite us to begin in this moment now? We could respond just by taking a moment of silence, taking a moment to come before the Lord wherever you're at, recognizing that God, He's inviting us every single time we gather to come to him to share with him our burdens our hearts to be honest o Lord, with our strengths or in our weaknesses may we come to the Lord in prayer and really share what's happening where we're at and trusting that the Lord will give us the strength that we need that the Lord is a God who is working in both to will and to work according to his good purpose so let's come before God in honesty of where we're at and how we can take steps of coming and drawing near to him in this season of life and then I'll close this in prayer